The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Support for this show comes from the Utopia Foundation, committed to providing opportunities for people to express their good intentions in local and international communities. Learn how you can create positive change in the world at utopiafound.org. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. As you just heard, this week's show is sponsored by the Utopia Foundation. Get more information about them at their website, utopiafound.org. My guest today is author and teacher Clark Strand. His books include Waking the Buddha, How the Most Dynamic and Empowering Buddhist Movement in History is Changing Our Concept of Religion, How to Believe in God Whether You Believe in Religion or Not, and his newest book, due out shortly, is called Waking Up to the Dark, Ancient Wisdom for a Sleepless Age. Clark is the founder of The Way of the Rose, a spiritual fellowship that places saying the rosary at the heart of its religious practice, spiritual practice. And you can read his essay, Appointment with the Wolf, Discovering an Ancient Hour Alone at Night with God, in the March-April issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Clark Strand, welcome to Essential Conversations. Thanks, Ronnie. Great to talk to you again. I want to start... Tell us about your sleeping problem, Clark. <laughs> Let's start with that. In the magazine, well, you tell us um, you keep waking up in the middle of the night. What you know? What is your problem? <laughs> well, I, I don't actually have a problem. That's the interesting thing. That's what I discovered. Uh, I've been waking up in the middle of the night uh, really all my life, uh, although in the 90s, you know, as a, a parent of young children, you know, trying to get my work done during the day, you know, it began to plague me a bit. I began to worry about it. And then I discovered a study done at the National Institute of Mental Health in the mid-90s that said that waking in the middle of the night uh, not only wasn't a form of sleep pathology, it was quite natural. In fact, this was the way that our ancient forebears had always slept. And at that point, I began to, you know, look into the matter a little more deeply, and I discovered basically all the material that I put into waking up to the dark. You know, I, I really I realize that human beings before the modern age basically woke every night for a, you know, what I call a meditation retreat for every Homo sapiens on Earth. The study shows that uh, prehistoric people slept four hours and naturally woke. Did they have to go pee and they have to go outside of the cave or something? I mean, what, <laughs> what was the motivation? That's what gets me up at two o'clock in the morning. I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Are, are we designed for four hours at a time? Yes, in fact, we are. And uh, what Dr. Thomas Ware at the National Institute of Health uh, discovered was that if you take 16 or 30 or however many people off the street, I think he, I think his sample size was 16 for the first study, and you take them completely off electrical lighting so that they 
basically, you know, start to retire sometime shortly after dusk and get up right about, you know, the time the sun comes up. What will happen is that for three weeks, they will sleep maybe an hour or an hour and a half longer, uh, just repaying the the kind of chronic sleep debt that most Americans have because we don't sleep enough. But after about week three, everybody reverts to the primordial pattern of sleep, which is still encoded in our DNA. We sleep for four hours, we wake for two hours, and sleep for another four. We call this divided sleep, but in ancient times, people used to simply refer to it as the first and the second sleep of the night. And you find evidence of that in Homer, in the Bible, uh, in the Upanishads. It's everywhere. You know, this was yeah, the you, way people always slept. You mentioned the Song of Songs, saying that when in the Song of Songs, when the woman says, I sleep, but my heart is awake, you take that as perhaps a signal of this divided sleep. But the two hours, if that's what it is, an hour to two hours that separate the, the longer periods of sleep, are they waking hours like, you know, I'm awake now, working hours, or are you in some other kind of consciousness between the two sleep periods? Well, that's the interesting thing, that Ware discovered what uh, religious and spiritual practitioners had known for a long time, which is that those hours have a state of consciousness all their own. What Ware discovered was that the hormone prolactin, which is the hormone that keeps mammals at rest while they're sleeping, is the hormone that rises in the bloodstream when a mother's milk lets down. It's the hormone that keeps birds still while they're roosting on their eggs. That hormone rises when we fall asleep. It's what keeps us still while we're asleep. But if you give yourself enough darkness to work with, what happens is when you wake in the middle of the night, your prolactin levels remain at sleep levels so that your body is very, very still. Your mind isn't particularly restless. It's a, it's a state of very deep tranquility. And um, what I discovered when I read this study was that you could look in the record, especially the record of spiritual texts and practices, and you could find evidence that people have been doing this for thousands of years. I interviewed Carthusian novice masters at monasteries. Uh, I talked to imams and lamas, you know, monks and nuns, roshis, all kinds of people. And uh, I found that what they described was, in, in each case, was virtually identical. Their practice might change a little bit from one religion to the next, but the experience they were having was, was the same experience. After four hours of sleep, they'd get up to chant or pray or meditate, and they'd enter a state in which they felt particularly blessed, forgiven, enlightened, or loved. Do you have to set... The waking up is natural, this divided sleep is natural, but... For people like us, do we have to set some kind of timer to make it happen? Or it happens to everyone, we need to just utilize that space and not just roll over and go back to sleep. Right. Well, what's happened is as uh, electrical lighting became uh, cheap and easily available and very convenient, you know, beginning in the uh, late 19th and early 20th century, what happened is we began to compress and consolidate our sleep nights like our work days into convenient eight-hour blocks. And so when that happened, we basically closed off that, that kind of open channel to the divine that used to stand open in the middle of the night. So what keeps us sleeping for eight hours straight is basically two things, I think. Uh, willpower, because it's not particularly natural. We have to almost force ourselves to do it. 
and electrical lighting, which is a stimulant we use to keep ourselves awake so that we can force ourselves to sleep straight through the night. And we really do that so that we're better workers given the, the structure of our, our corporate day, our, our, right, I mean, our, exactly. our work day. The way we sleep, yeah, the way yeah. we sleep now is a, is a post-industrial uh, uh, way of life. You know, we sleep, we sleep like post-industrial people. It's not particularly natural. Uh, you know, we, we sleep, we sleep the way we do in order to serve the interests of, uh, of commerce, basically. So, you've been experimenting with this period, you know, uh, between the two sleep sessions, and you found it to be a very rich opportunity for spiritual practice. You talk about the experience of, in Hebrew, it's called heat bodedut. It's a practice given to us by Reb Nachman of Roslov, the 18th century or 19th century great-grandson of the Baal Shem Tov who founded Hasidic Judaism. So tell us a little bit about what you do with that and what others might do with that. You know, I was trying to account for something that had been happening to me much of my life, since childhood, actually. During my years in New York City, I wasn't able to get up and, you know, walk around outside, which was what I loved to do as a child and what I reverted to when we moved to the mountains in uh, the mid-90s. But during my years in Manhattan, I began to, you know, sort of experiment with this state of mind a little bit more. You know, all I had to work with was basically my old set of monks' prayer beads. So I would use those in the middle of the night rather than actually getting up and wandering around. But when we moved to Woodstock, New York in 1996, and I was out and wandering again, I found that I had a set of very profound spiritual needs kind of left over from my years as a Zen Buddhist monk, and I needed to exercise them in some way. I was at that time beginning to drift back more in the direction of the Western spiritual tradition, and so I was very curious about you know, were there any practices that, uh, you know, could be used during this period of time? And a friend of mine, uh, who uh, is a cantor at the local synagogue, you know, he handed me a little book called Outpouring of the Soul, which is a collection of Rev. Nachman's uh, teachings on his buddhidit, uh, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, usually, although you could do it any other time, and talking aloud to God as if to a true good friend. And so when I read this little book for the first time, here was somebody describing the experience I've been having for years, and it was a great relief to me because, for one thing, it told me that I didn't wake in the middle of the night because there was something wrong with me. I woke because I was supposed to. And this little booklet told me what I was supposed to do during that time. I've since discovered that there are many practices you can do during that time, but in the beginning, I talked out loud to God, like Reverend Bachman advised his disciples to do. And I would walk along, and I would talk out loud. You know, sometimes I'd get an answer from an owl or a, uh, or a catbird. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Tell us the title of the book again in case someone wants to follow up on that. It's called Outpouring of the Soul. It's translated, I believe, by Ari Kaplan. 
and published by Breslov Research Institute. It's a very short book. It has 64 short chapters. You can turn to it as a spiritual resource for a lifetime and never exhaust it. So let me ask you this. You're not Jewish, and you're using this Hasidic practice. You're not Catholic, as far as I know, and you're using the rosary in your Way of the Rose program. And you used to be a Zen Buddhist monk. So I want to have you tell us a little bit about the Way of the Rose. Do you see yourself as a part of, maybe even a pioneer of this spiritually independent movement? You know, people who are just seeing themselves as heir to the entirety of human spirituality, religiosity, and not necessarily tied to a single faith tradition? You know, I certainly felt myself on the cutting edge of that spiritual but not religious kind of movement. And I think like a lot of us who were on the cutting edge of it, who were writing books along that line, once the movement had begun to enter the mainstream, we were already pretty well along that path. I wrote a book called The Wooden Bowl, since retitled as Meditation Without Gurus, that was very much along that line. You could basically practice what I at the time was calling i-religion because you would download whatever it was you needed, you know, onto your spiritual hard drive rather than taking the whole CD or whole album approach of a religion. So I might very well like the rosary, but I might not have any use in particular for the mass or confession. So I would download that, you know, and use that, but not the rest. But what I discovered as time went on was that you could end up as a dabbler that way. You could end up with a very shallow kind of spiritual life if you weren't careful. Religious traditions had been very wise in the sense that they knew what went into creating a complete spiritual life with community and all the kind of resources you needed in order to have a rich and fulfilling spiritual and emotional life. And so once you started mixing and matching, there was no guarantee you'd end up with a whole pie. You might only end up with pieces. So what I would say now is that what I practice is spiritual but not religious but not shallow. I think that really is the way to look at it. We don't necessarily want to subscribe to every aspect of the religious traditions we were born to. At the same time, we don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. So for me, practices like Ibodhita and the Rosary have come down to us and been passed down for many generations. A rosary for a thousand years, and Hibbutta didn't really begin with Reb Nachman. You know, he insisted that it was the most ancient practice of all. So he would have reckoned it as being at least 3,000 years old and perhaps older. So these are practices that come down to us, which if we give themselves to our, uh, give ourselves to them in a very sincere and humble way, willing to learn them and devote ourselves to them, can enrich our lives and they become the seed from which, you know, an entire whole and healthy spiritual life can grow. Yeah, I mean, you're rooting it in practice as opposed to belief. I think that's what keeps it from being shallow. Not that belief is necessarily shallow, but when someone is on this spiritually independent path, the danger is that it has no depth to it. And that's oftentimes because it's just the ideas that attract us and we don't give ourselves over to or or develop any deep practice. So you're certainly practice oriented. Talking about God, you're talking about talking to God during this period between the, the sleep periods. And you have a book called How to Believe in God, Whether You Believe in Religion or Not. How do you believe in God? What's your concept of deity at this point? My own understanding at this point definitely has drifted much farther on the spectrum toward the feminine face of the divine. 
and obviously I'm devoted to the rosary, and the rosary is, you know, although modern card-carrying Catholics may insist that it's really about Jesus, the rosary itself doesn't lie. There are ten Hail Marys to every Our Father in the rosary. So it's clearly a very female-oriented practice in that sense, very much about the divine feminine. The rosary actually was created in the Middle Ages as a way of sort of grafting devotion to Mary onto the rootstock of much older forms of goddess worship that had existed in those parts of Europe for thousands and thousands of years. So I'm really just sort of picking up a very, very old practice. Bev Nachman said, I am taking you on a new path that is really the old path path traveled by our ancestors. And I apply that same logic, that same wisdom to the rosary. I'm really practicing the rosary in a way that certainly almost predates the Catholic use of prayer beads as a way of evoking the comforting, maternal, earthier presence of God. But I'm not insistent, because really, the idea of God that is, I believe, the healthiest idea in the modern world is the one that the 12-step spirituality subscribes to, which is the God of your understanding, even if that's goddess. I know that you even call the period, the darkness between the two sleep periods. You even speak of that in terms of the feminine. And waking up to the dark, the last section of the book is actually called the Black Madonna. The last third of the book is devoted to her. But I refer to that gap period between the first and second sleep as the hour of God. That was the way I always thought of it from when I first realized that it was a thing, that it was a phenomenon that had existed for a long time. I, I began to conceive of it as the hour of God. But when I use the term God there, it really is the God of your understanding. It's uh, God in the term the hour of God is kind of a stand-in for the divine. And that can mean a lot of different things. And when a person begins to wake after the first sleep of the night and devote that time to prayer and meditation, you know, you become very intimate with the divine. And however that plays out is really a kind of an individual and personal matter. Because at that hour of the night, there's nobody else watching and there's nobody else pleased but you and God in whatever form he or she takes. True. And, and I'm interested specifically in this feminine aspect. I mean, it's a personal thing for me. I've yeah. come to the same position. I've written a couple of books on the divine feminine, translated a Catholic mystical text dealing with yeah. the divine mother. So this is something that I agree with, that I happen to experience as well. When I talk to God, when I practice heat bodhidut, I'm clearly hearing a feminine response. What the rabbis in the Talmud, you know, 2000 years ago is called the bat kol, the daughter's voice. And I take that to be right. the, the voice of wisdom, which in the scriptures is a feminine thing. If you want to know more about this rosary practice, please check out Clark's website. It's called wayoftherose.org, wayoftherose.org. So the last question in the minute we have left is if someone were to, I'm not used to waking up in the middle of the night, how would they go about it? What would they do to try to tap into that deep spiritual period in the middle of their sleep cycle? Well, it's very, very simple. It really couldn't be much simpler. I mean, for some people, maybe it's a little more difficult than others, depending on where they live. You just have to turn out the lights. If you begin shutting off the lights in your house or your apartment, say, an hour or two earlier, in the beginning, you don't have to go completely dark. You can simply, uh, you know, unscrew a few light bulbs or 
turn off a few lights after dusk so that you're not quite so super saturated with the artificial illumination after dusk. But gradually, what you want to do is give yourself a couple of more hours of darkness so that you're no longer robbing Peter to pay Paul in your daily life. What will happen if you do that is you'll be creating the space to wake in the middle of the night for the hour of God. So if you're used to going to bed at midnight, you aim for 10 p.m. And you don't have to get there all at once. But if you can begin to migrate in the direction of a darker, less illuminated night, eventually that channel will reopen. It's natural. It's bound to happen. All right. Very interesting. Clark, thank you very much for being our guest today. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is brought to you this week by Utopia Foundation, providing the opportunity for people to create solutions that contribute toward a more equitable world. Please visit them at utopiafound.org. Essential Conversations is a project of Spirituality and Health magazine. Please visit our website, spiritualityhealth.com, to subscribe to the magazine and to this podcast. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is produced by Corinne Johnston, and Alma Tassi is our program coordinator. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.